Um, today I want to share with you guys a continuation. Actually, we're coming near the end of our year-long pulpit series from the book of Acts. How many of you, you feel that you really understand the book of Acts better this year? Okay. How many of you feel that you've grown? Yep. Yep. My wife, yeah. And worship leader and uh, yeah, prayer leaders. Yeah. Okay. Small handful of you. Asking myself, do I want to do this every week? <laughs> of course, I do want to do this every week, right? Let me pray before we continue. Father, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for your word, which is not just like any other document, in a historical document to be, to be studied. We thank you that your word is not just like any, like, like any other uh, piece of written instruction um, to, to just be, to, to, to just be uh, taken uh, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very dry way. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that your word um, is so much more. Your word breaks open uh, um, uh, before us in our Bibles and then they break open the, the cavities of our hearts so that you can come in and search us. Your word uh, uh, reaches deep into us. Your word became flesh and dwelt among us. Your word was there in the beginning when you spoke and created all things. Father, we thank you that your word, your word came and became Jesus Christ. And today, your word continues to go forth, even as Jesus says that the kingdom is in our midst. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we explore and plunge into the beauty of what you have revealed of yourself in Scripture, that we can know you, see you better, and grow to love you um, with, a, with, with renewed hearts, Lord. So, Father, we thank you. May I decrease, may you increase to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was, in, uh, I was attending a wedding yesterday, yesterday morning. And uh, it was in main church. Uh, it was a wedding of a, of a guy uh, whom I journeyed with when I was pastoring the young adults back in the SRBKL main church a few years ago, pre-pandemic. And so I was, I was there in the crowd. I didn't have a role. I wasn't solemnizing. I wasn't sharing the wedding sermonette. I was just sitting all the way at the back and listening to the wedding vows. And you know, um, the couple would have the standard vows, but they would also write their own vows. If you attend lots of weddings, you would have heard a lot of uh, uh, the custom vows. And I was listening to the vows and thinking to myself, this is like a prayer. The vows that they are making to each other um, essentially vows to give to each other sacrificially, you know, um, expressions like, you complete me, and, uh, and, uh, and all, all, all the romantic stuff, right? Um, uh, you, uh, um, you, you, you uh, I, I vow to, to love you all the days of my life. I, I realized that when you listen to wedding vows, they could just as well, just as easily be prayers said to God. And that, I found that really interesting because the entire, because the fascinating thing was I jumped right out of a wedding into a PMC session, right? So, so jumping out from a wedding to a PMC session, thinking about the vows I heard, and then working through with a couple through, through, through things that, that they will be anticipating in married life uh, was fascinating because it just made me realize that the entire wedding marriage process is one of giving of yourself and having someone else give themselves to you and to know and be known. To know and be known. To know your lover 
You know, when we pray that lover is God, you know, when we get married, the lover is your spouse, you know, to know them, but also to let yourself be known by them, to reveal something of yourself and to have someone reveal themselves to you so that there is a mutual exchange in what we call uh, a union, right? Whether the union is um, a union with God, you know, uh, uh, in a spiritual sense, or union in marriage. Now, this isn't a wedding sermon, of course, um, but I am sharing with you certain things that I saw from Acts chapter 17, which led me uh, 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 to think a lot this week, uh, you know, whenever I could, about the relationship between whether we know our God and to what extent do we know our God. Today, I want to share with you a word that I've entitled, Known or Unknown God. And I know that right here in this hall, if I ask you, how many of you want to know God more? You will say yes. Most of you would, would without question, say yes. Those of you who have been walking with God uh, uh, in a church background, you know, for many years, will probably still say yes, even though you've been walking with God for a long time. You're familiar with your Bible and all that stuff. So, all the more, I want to pose you this question. Do you really want to know God more? I see some of you nodding. And I see some of you nervously not nodding because I'm asking you a second time, which means that, you know, there's a, maybe there's another, maybe there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trick. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is, right? So today, hold on to that question for yourself. Okay, I don't want you to think about whether other people know God. I don't want you to think about whether your political enemies know God or whether your, the enemy at your workplace knows God, right? I want to ask you, do you want to know God more? Do you want to know God truer? Do you want to know God better? Do you want to know God so well, so well that you are so accustomed, so conversant with who He is, that the moment you so-called touch the counterfeit, you know it's not God. You understand what I mean? I used to have a friend, he's passed away, uh, a dear brother who works with with restoring uh, designer handbags. Okay? And he spent like a few months uh, in China working in <laughs> some, some underground factory where, where, where these guys make counterfeit bags, right? And so he learned from them how they tear apart the entire thing, how they put the entire thing back together, the stitching, exactly how the original people do the stitching, where the counterfeiters copy, how they can't copy exactly. He knows everything right down uh, um, to the exter exterior, everything, right? Right? The buckles, the measurements, everything. And so, uh, he, was, he would restore bags for people and sometimes people would bring their bags in. Very expensive. Sh what should be in the tens of thousands and he would pick it up and just by the weight distribution of the bag when he picks it up, he knows. <laughs> right? He knows this is... Uh, um, um, you probably overpaid for this, right? Um, and, but that comes with a very deep, intimate knowledge of the original. You can't, you can't tell the counterfeit apart from the original unless you really know the original. Because the counterfeits can weigh any weight. The counterfeit can be lighter by a bit or lighter by a lot. The counterfeit might even be heavier by a bit or heavier by a lot. The original, however, only weighs one thing. It only has one weight and one consistent weight. In the same way that a five ringgit note will only ever be a five ringgit note. 
and it is the original five ringgit note. Every counterfeit of a five ringgit note will differ from the original in its own way. And its counterfeitness can be discerned in different ways. But the original contains none of the counterfeit. I want to give this to you. It's not on the screens, but I want you to remember it. If you got a, if you got a phone, you got a notepad, you write this down, okay? The counterfeit contains none of the original. Sorry. No, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say that again, okay? Because the counterfeit does, okay? Counterfeit contains much of the original, just not all of the original. The counterfeit contains the five at the top, the agong face there. Counterfeit contains the green. Counterfeit contains much of the original, but the original contains none of the counterfeit. Okay, you can take that to the bank. Okay, now today I want to talk with you also about the ways to know God, how you can know God so well that you, you, that you really can touch Him, you really can feel Him, and when you feel Him, you know. Amen? Amen? Now, if you don't have a Bible in this church and you're sitting here and you're going like, okay, we're going to break open the Word, right? There are Bibles at the back. If you turn around, uh, Jack at the back, okay, is holding up. We have got English Bibles, okay? We have got bilingual Chinese English. We've got bilingual BM English, you know? Uh, we've got all full Chinese Bibles as well, you know? So if you want to have a Bible open with you right now uh, so you can, you know, really search it for yourself, by the time I get to my second point, you wish you went to the back to get it, okay? It's a good look. Anyway, never mind. Um, uh, you can go around the back, okay? I don't mind. You all just want to stand up, walk over to Jack right now. Or if you want to raise your hand, Jack will bring a Bible to you, okay? It's about my Bible is in my black bag, and I would love to have it with me, even though I have the slides, but once or twice I may lift it for visual effect. So I think this. <laughs> okay, thanks. All right, here we are, right? Second missionary journey, Paul. Silas, Timothy, and I'm sure by now Luke is one of them because if you read, the, he uses the pronoun we, right? And so it's very likely that at some point on this journey, um, around the time where we got introduced, Luke has joined the journey and is traveling along with them. Now, last time we checked in, let me zoom this in for you. Last time we checked in, they were in a Paul and Silas were in a prison in Philippi. Okay? Sorry? Slides. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. I haven't done this in so many weeks that so many of you who are new may not have noticed this. There is a QR code in front of you, or in front of you on the chair in front of you. That is not to get money, okay? Please, okay? Uh, we are not that kind of church, okay? Yeah, one in front of you, one at the exit, one at the entrance. Yeah. It's not, okay? If you scan this, the QR code in front of you, it takes you to our link tree. A link tree is just a bunch of links, okay, um, online, where the first one, the one right at the top, you can access today's sermon slides. So you can have the sermon slides right on your mobile device so you don't have to pick up your phone, you know, put things somewhere you have to pick up your iPad and take photo of the screen from all the way there. You don't have to do that. You can just scan the QR code in front of you, click on the first link which says today's sermon slides or something like that, you know, and you can have the entire deck on your mobile device. You can do this not just for today. Every week you'll be there. All the past week's ones are also there, all right? Let's go on. Last time we were in, they were in Philippi, Paul and Silas. 
God broke their chains through an earthquake while they were worshipping and praying in the prison cell. They are now out. They have visited Lydia's house. They have sauntered slowly and relaxingly out of Philippi. And now they have reached the first of three cities that they will be going to today. So today is major road trip day, okay? Like here, going to Penang, you stop in Jandabai, you stop in Ipoh, then you go to Penang, right? Okay? That's kind of like today, okay? So we are in Thessalonica, Berea, then Athens. Now, today I'm going to show you three things, okay? If you want to know God, three things. And in each city, we learn a new thing, Okay? How many of you like traveling? Yeah, y'all like traveling. Ask how many of y'all learned something from X this year. Nobody raised your hand. <laughs> Guess what? Traveling is a big part of Acts, okay? So I know y'all like traveling, okay? And y'all have been, been journeying through the book of Acts, okay? Every place you travel to, you learn new things. And today, every new city we go to, we're going to learn a new thing about how to know God better. In Thessalonica, we're going to learn that we know God through rejecting blind, violent, zealotry. Wow. Big words, okay? Uh, big ideas, okay? I was asking myself, and I was half asleep uh, in the middle of the night and asking myself, why didn't I say blind, violent, zeal? It's just not quite the same thing, okay? Not quite the same thing. In Berea, we will see that you can come to know God better through eagerly searching your scriptures. That's why you want to go get one of those Bibles, right? Um, and in the third city, in Athens, you will learn that you can know God better through reaching out. Just reaching out wherever you are. Just reach out and find Him. He is not so far from you. He is near. He can be found if you reach out to find Him. But we're going to start in the city of Thessalonica, okay? Um, or as today, it is called Thessaloniki, okay? Uh, this is an ancient uh, round first, first AD map uh, um, of Thessalonica. It is a port. It is, I think, at that time, the second largest or second most uh, uh, largest port and city in that whole Macedonian Greek area, you know? And, and until today, Thessalonica is still uh, a very bustling city. Now, um, what you're going to see in the, in, in the passages where they are in Thessalonica is actually a riot taking place. Okay? Um, what happens is, you know, Paul goes and he preaches and, you know, as, as is very often the case, you know, the local uh, uh, Jews get really touchy about what Paul has to say and then a riot happens. And so I was looking for a photograph. No, I was actually looking for a painting. Okay, I'm going to show you a few paintings today. Okay? I was looking for a painting of someone depicting the riots in, Ephes in Thessalonica. So I ran a search for riot in Thessalonica, you know, and... Uh, I got, I got this. I was like, no, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. But, but thanks, Google, for letting me know that there were real modern-day riots in Thessalonica as well. And I, and I started to look for actual paintings of the actual X-17 riot. Couldn't really find. And then I asked myself, actually, it's not very different looking from this. 
Yeah, it's not very different looking from this. There are, there are going to be actual people who will be, you know, holding weapons, whatever makeshift weapons that they can find, beating other people who may not be holding weapons at all. There will be some law enforcers, you know, trying to keep things under control. Okay, maybe they didn't have all the, you know, shields and smoke bombs and all those things, but probably some fires and all these kind of weird things, you know. So, let me read to you parts of Acts 17, Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke in Thessalonica. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, you don't have to read this, okay? It's very small. It's just there for you to, for, for, for you to keep me honest, okay? Um, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue, right? And on three Sabbaths, Paul preaches the gospel in the synagogues. That's what he always does. He goes straight for the Jewish worship places. He preaches the gospel there. And then if he has a chance, you know, it, that it grows out of the synagogue to touch more of the other locals. Now, he preaches for three Sabbaths. Over the three Sabbaths, the three weeks, okay, the Jews and the Greeks come to believe. Some Jews and some Greeks. It's interesting if you look into your Bibles, okay, um, it says here in verse 4, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. So you are talking about high-born people in society, so to speak, right? Um, now, you have to understand uh, ancient first century AD uh, uh, communities was not like huge middle class, you know, and then with like a small super rich and a small, you know, you, you know uh, um, or like a B40 or B20, something like that. It wasn't like that, right? Culture in those days, economy in those days was such that you have a small group of super wealthy people and then a huge group of people who are actually very, very poor, you know, and very little space in between. The graph would be like, right? Something like that, right? And so, um, some of the aristocratic women were coming to the faith, right? So this is not a nothing movement. This movement is not just gathering sheer number of people. It's also starting to gather, if you can say, the KOLs of their community. And that's not fun if you are not um, of this faith, if you, are, if you consider it an opponent or a rival faith to yours. Now, I did preach a lot more on the church in Thessalonica last year, okay? So if you are keen to explore the Thessalonian church more, I preached a series on 2 Thessalonians last year. You can go to YouTube, just run a search for the Gutsy Church, um, Sungai Bulo, SIBKL, whatever, and you'll find like six sermons on this book of 2 Thessalonians, okay? Um, and, and you can do that in, in your free time, okay? Um, now what happens is that once people start believing, the Jewish zealots, now zealots just pretty much means people who are very passionate, very um, activistic about what they believe, tends to have a political uh, 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 flavor to the word, right? Um, now the Jewish zealots became jealous and their response was to gather the wicked men in the city and turn them into a mob that they could use. So the Jewish zealots themselves were not directly in the mob, or at least it doesn't quite say so, but they gathered, they gathered people who were very happy and very willing to be the attack dogs. Okay? So people who are like, 
have the, I don't know, basic competencies to start fights, you know. You and I, I don't know, how many of y'all know how to start fights? I don't know how to start fights, okay? Like, if I get really angry with someone, I probably like, you know, I probably bottle it up, right? I, I don't know how to go shove someone in the, in the chest and then when they shove me back, I go like, shove them even harder. I, 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 I'm not good at that kind of thing, okay? I, I don't know if I should be good at that kind of thing. But there are always people in town who are very good at that kind of thing, okay? And these Jewish zealots knew where to find them. And they found them. And they gathered them and turned them into a very useful uh, uh, kind of like subcontract out, you know, they are rioting to this group of people who are already very good at it. And through them, started a riot in the city complaining that these guys, okay, these guys being Paul, Silas and all that, have done something very seditious and very, um, very politically wrong and off-coloured. What do they say? They say that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And this is supposed to be the charge against Paul and Silas and Timothy and the gang, okay? Um, it's not a gang, it's just four, four guys, okay? This is the charge against them for their, for, for the, you know, a, a disruption to the ketenteraman awam, right? To the public uh, uh, peace and law and order. And it says, now, what do you think of when you see this charge? I want to refine it a little bit for you, okay? Is this true? Is this a true charge? Now, I just want to be clear. The people who were turning the city upside down were the rioters. Okay, let's just be very clear about that. The rioters who were gathered were gathered for the purpose of creating a havoc and disturbing public peace, okay? That's true, okay? But the funny thing is, in some metaphorical way, the gospel, the good news of light and life and rescue and salvation was in some ways turning the whole world upside down. It was already turning Philippi upside down where earthquakes would happen, you know, jailers and jailbirds would share a meal, baptize, wash each other's wounds. It's, it's crazy. The world was being left in an upturned way, you know, wherever the gospel had gone. Or if I may say in, in a maybe more accurately, the world was being turned right side up because everything... You know, if you look out into the world that we live in, I think it's quite obvious that the whole world is already upside down and the gospel, the God that we, whom we love, whom we are knowing more day by day, is turning the world back right side up and that occurs wherever kingdom-hearted Christians go because Jesus says the kingdom of God is already in your midst. Wherever you go, you bring the inauguration of the king in this world, a new king, a another king, another king, not the same king. And this king does not show up on, in grand parades and chariots of white horses, the way the Roman kings would have. This king does not uh, get born 
you know, with huge grand kind of like palatial ceremonies, you know, and like public holiday for one week, you know. This king was born in a very humble home outside the ordinary spaces of the home where the animals live and his first court was a food trough. This king constantly subverts our expectations of what kings are like. And he continues to subvert our expectations of what kings are like because the, the archetypal king, the archetype king, the stereotype king uh, that, that you can think of on that day is Caesar. Now, how does Caesar do things? Caesar does things by the sword. And this king, another king, Jesus, does not. Remember, when, when Jesus disciples took out the sword. It was Peter, right? And in his fit of typical, you know, Peter-like, you know, uh, uh, impulsiveness, you know, takes a hack at one of the Roman soldiers. Jesus says, put that sword away. Right? Because if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And quite a few hours later, Jesus himself will show him that if you live by the cross, you too will die by the cross. But that's a far better way to live and die. Right? This other king is not like Caesar. And I can tell you it's very important that we get this into our hearts that as Christians, Caesar is not our king. Because you can be in your workplace and you can have someone in your workplace who is just aggravating you. Or you can live into a, in a neighbourhood and have a neighbour, an old neighbour, a new neighbour, you know, um, who is also just aggravating you. And if your king is Caesar, then you bend your knee to Caesar's way of doing things. And Caesar's way of doing things is always to live by the sword and die by the sword. And Jesus has another way. And this applies whether you're in your workplace, whether you're in your garden, or whether you're reading the news, about conflict happening far away from Malaysia. It always applies. I'm going to ask you, in every situation you can think of, is Caesar or Jesus your king? Because if vengeance rises up in your heart, I'm not talking about righteous anger, I'm talking about like vengeance that you really want, you really start heaping curses, you really start heaping willing death, vengeful, retribution on what you perceive to be your enemies, then I'm really going to have to ask you, who is your king? And if Jesus is your king, the first thing to ask is not what would I do, the first thing to ask is what has Jesus done? And how has Jesus responded to injustice, to violence upon his own body, to a sham trial? How has Jesus responded to all these things? Your answer will be that he submitted to the legal system of his day. Not by bending his knee to Caesar, by bending his knee before the Lord, his father, and then submitting himself to the consequences that will come at him. He could have gotten off the cross. We know that, right? 
He could have brought a legion of angels to destroy and lay waste to the Roman uh, uh, um, oppression on him. He could have. But my friends, you may hear it being said that the root of violence is oppression. Jesus shows us that He has a different way. Think properly about what you legitimize in terms of a violent response. There is another king, and that king is our king. He's King Jesus, and he doesn't work the way Caesar's work. Now, when you hear about this, you, your mind might go back to Pilate and Jesus, and how Pilate asked him, if you're, are you a king? And Jesus refused to answer. He said, no, really, are you a king? Right? And Jesus eventually says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my people would be coming here right now to set me free and, and, and all that. He, he goes on a little bit about that. But I want to bring your mind to the conversation just before that with, between Pilate and the mob. There was another mob that day led by Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and the entire community of Jewish people that day who were there, who were trying very hard to get Jesus executed. And the conversation goes a little bit like this. The Jewish mob on that day would say, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Right? Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Who are they sharing allegiance with, given this kind of language? Caesar. They are, they are effectively saying that Caesar is my king, okay? But don't worry, they eventually say it literally, right? Pilate goes back, talks to Jesus, brings Jesus back out and displays him and says, Here is your king! This is Jesus of Nazareth. The Jews say, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Pilate says, should I crucify your king? Twice, Pilate almost insists to them that Jesus should be their king. Strange. Come on, go think about that a little bit. Go read your John 19 another time, right? And then the chief priest, Caiaphas, calls out these words that should send chills down all our spines. He says, we have no king but Caesar. Dear Lord, God forbid. God forbid. Church, Caesar's not a king. Just so you know. And just so we can get it deep into our hearts. Every time you see things happening, whether it's inside your heart, whether you're, whether you're boiling out in Caesar-like ways or Pharaoh-like ways, right? Remember, that you belong to a different kind of king. And here you see this flashpoint taking place all over again. Now, I'm going to have to move on. But the first thing, first way, you're going to, we are all as a church going to come to a place where we can know God better is to be very careful when zealotry becomes blind and violent he saw it in Thessalonica. You see it in our own hearts all the time. You see it in our own hearts all the time. Sometimes when you're driving, you see it happening. People cut into your lane. You're like, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. Okay. 
and one of my favorite puns is uh, is the song, the steadfast love of the Lord <laughs> never ceases. Okay, <laughs> no God through rejecting blind, violent zealotry. No God through eagerly searching your scriptures. Because of the riot, they are thrown out of Thessalonica. They make the short trip over to the next city, which is Berea. Berea, right? Today, it is called Veria. It is still a city in, Greek, um, in Greece, okay? And Berea, there's not, not a whole lot more. If you were to just go and like quickly do a quick one, you wiki this ancient city, you get like, you know, two scrolls of it, you know. Um, one interesting little note uh, about Berea is, if, you've, if you know your Bibles, uh, 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 there's a book called, called Philemon, right? Philemon uh, deals, is Paul writing to, uh, to a slave owner about his slave who ran away. Slave's name is Onesimus, right? And, uh, and Paul is saying, I'm sending your slave back to you as a Christian brother, no longer as a slave. Receive him as you would receive me. Right? Um, and, uh, and some historical records have Onesimus as becoming the first bishop of Berea. Okay? And so, interesting little detail. Now, um, in Berea, Paul and Silas were sent away to Berea. Upon their arrival, they went again to the synagogue. Now, when they preach the word in Berea, it's not the same as in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they had some salvations, but actually they had a lot of conflict. In Berea, the people received the word with eagerness. And not just with eagerness, they searched their scriptures, they examined their scriptures daily to fact-check Paul. Now, this is not like your Fox News fact-checkers or your, your, your Wall Street Journal fact-checkers. A little bit, okay? But these are people who are like eagerly searching the Scriptures going, Paul, what is this you're saying to us? And then they're like looking through uh, um, their Old Testament. They're looking through the prophets. They're like, where did he say this? I want to check this out. And they're checking it out. Like, is he telling the truth? Is this really the Messiah? And all that. Now, you've got to understand something about when Paul preaches in this time. There is no New Testament. There is no Gospels collected already, right? There is no that part of the Bible. What they have is the Jewish Scriptures as everyone knows it. And how Paul would go preaching from synagogue to synagogue in all the different cities is that he would begin with probably Abraham, Moses, okay, the origins of their faith. And then he would start showing them that the hope, the messianic hope, the hope for a saviour, a rescuer, their Christos, is now found. It's been satisfied. It's been, been, been solicited in Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah that, that fulfills all of Israel's long centuries and millennia of longing and waiting. That's how Paul would preach everywhere he goes. And he would, he would end that kind of preaching by saying that, and it was the Jews who crucified him, and he was raised back to life, and in his resurrection, that confirms that he is Israel's Messiah and Saviour of the whole world. Right? And because the resurrection caps off, closes the story out, authenticating and legitimizing him as Israel's Messiah and Savior of the whole world. Paul would preach 
pretty much like that. And I'm not making this up. You see him preaching. You see Peter preaching like that as well in the opening passages of the book of Acts. Now, he goes, he preaches. What would the Jewish listeners in the synagogue do? They would obviously have to go to their scriptures. Lah. You talk about Moses, Moses, then you have to go lah, to Exodus and like fact check. Really or not? Really or not? You know, you go to Ezekiel. Wow. You know, son of man. Wow. Go lah. Look lah, right? So the Bereans were very engaged with the word. I read one commentator saying that the Bereans are like the, uh, the congregation every pastor wants when they are preaching, right? And I suppose, <laughs> I suppose, okay, um, you have to decide whether you are this kind of uh, congregation, okay? Um, and the result of it is that they believe, right? It says here, as a consequently, many of them believe. And so I want to, I want to, I want to help you see this. Your rigor, how rigorous you are. See, I, I knew I needed this for some kind of visual effect. How rigorous you are with this is directly in correlation with your faith levels. Oh, I'm going to say that again. How studious you are, how serious you are, how much you examine your scriptures, how prepared and diligent you are to fact-check the things you hear on the pulpit. I can put anything on the screen, huh? I can hoodwink all of you if you don't have your Bible in your hands. I could show nonsense here if you don't have a Bible in your hand. It's the reason why every once in a while I show all these really huge slides like with really small text. I do it because I want to show you the receipts. You got to be able to fact check me. So I don't just show you dot points. Dot points is not Bible. This is the Bible. And so I show you this and this so that on your mobile device you can ping, ping, ping. True, right? Or not. You should be able to do that. You must be able to do that. Because there'll be many days you'll be listening to a sermon on a podcast while you're driving. You can't fact check that. You shouldn't anyway, not right on the spot anyway. But you should develop the discipline of examining the things you hear people tell you about the Christian God. Including, maybe even especially, if you're in this church, when what I say about the Christian God, you really should be fact-checking me. Because if you belong in this church, you're going to hear me preach about the Christian God more than maybe other preachers, unless you're binge listening to something else, which is perfectly fine. Then you got to fact-check that too. But you should. It's a very important habit. It's a very important discipline. And I used to do that all the time. All the time. When I wasn't here, but I was there. Right? And I want to encourage you to do the same. Because your faith, how hard, how well you believe, is in direct correlation to how vigilant and how rigorous you are with the Word. And Jesus is the revelation. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, is God, was always God. Created everything when God spoke and said, let there. The Word created and then the Word became a creation. The Word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. And that is Jesus. So let's take our Word of God seriously. Of course, after a few weeks of this, after a few days of this, actually they spent less time in Berea than they did in Thessalonica. Word 
got back to Thessalonica that they are doing this Jesus work and it seems to be taking root in Berea. So the travelling riot mob comes down from Thessalonica and kachao the work in Berea. And they create another violent uh, 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 riot in another city. These guys really, they, they really believe in what they do. Just, let's just give it to them, right? They really sold out to their cause. I wish all of us were sold out to Jesus' cause in, in gentleness and love, right? Um, but cannot law, they can't continue. Actually, they, they gather everyone. Paul is sent to Athens. Paul doesn't choose to go to Athens. Okay? The, people, the locals in Berea just grab Paul and they start going like, we got to get out of here, right? So they get out of there, right? And as they're going out of there, I suppose they just start going south, law. Oh, yeah, they go south, they go south, they get onto a, they throw him onto a ship, right? Um, I don't know which port they, they do that in, and then they send him off, and he ends up, you know, docking at Athens. Silas, Timothy, probably including Luke, stay back, presumably to continue the work with the Berean church that are so cut short, okay? But that's what happens there. Now, I want you to see this, right? The people here examine the word with eagerness. Now, remember just now I was telling you about how Paul would preach, okay? There is another incident in your New Testament, okay? I'm going to give you a clue. It's at the ending of the Gospel of John, right? Uh, no, ending of the Gospel of Luke, where someone does something similar to this, goes through all of the Hebrew Scriptures to show you the Messiah is Jesus. Ah, who knows the answer? Raise your hand. What incident was this? I'm like looking at May. I'm like, May, it surely can't just be a two of us, right? <laughs> yeah. But May, was it? You didn't quite. Wrote to Emmaus. Yes, Sarah. Wrote to Emmaus, right? Um, after Jesus is resurrected, um, there is a, a very lovely small story of two men. I don't know if lovely is the word. Um, two men walking about after Jesus has been resurrected. And a, a third man joins them and asks, What's going on? Why are y'all looking so down? You know, like, uh, brother, you don't know, man. You know, over this weekend, this Jesus Christ who, you know, who performed all these miracles, who did all these amazing things, you know, um, who we were hoping would be the Messiah was just captured and he's just been crucified. And today is the, is the third day, right? And then some of our women went over and saw that, that his body is no longer there. So actually, we don't know what to think of all this. And then Jesus who was the third man. Of course, at that point, they could not recognise some, you know, uh, they just could not see that that was Jesus, okay? Maybe not expecting also uh, out of context. Uh, um, starts going back and from Moses onwards, starts showing them while walking. Uh, you know, he, he couldn't pull out all his like scrolls and all that. Uh, he's just verbally walking and telling them from Moses until now how the Messiah was that man who got crucified and who has been raised back to life. And almost kind of like when they, they eventually end up having dinner together and then they break bread and suddenly these two guys like, this is that man. This is the Jesus. And then, you know, uh, end of story, right? Um, I share this with you so that you can see that your experience and your search and your rigour with your Bible it's a journey with Jesus. You're not doing this alone, trying to fumble your way through the Word. 
I want you to know that when you take Jesus seriously, He comes alongside you. He walks with you. He is the one doing the explanation of how He is. The culmination of all your hopes for a Saviour. He is the satisfaction of all your deepest unknown longings. He is the Jesus who is searching for you. Even as you put in your 1% to search for Him, He takes the other 99 steps towards you to help you find Him. Amen? You want to know God? First, stay away. Be very careful of blind, violent zealotry. Secondly, know God through eagerly searching the Scriptures for yourself. And then do it in groups, do it in cell groups, do Bible study together, you know, um, and all that. And thirdly, know God through reaching out and finding Him. Yes, we end up in Athens. Athens! How many of you have been to Athens? Modern-day Athens. I'm not going to ask how many of you have been to ancient Athens. How many of you have been to modern-day Athens? Raise your hand all the way up, all the way up, all the way up. Yep, 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 yep. All right, okay. Nice, small handful of you. I've never been to Athens. I think it would be fascinating to go there. Uh, so did Paul. When Paul ended, uh, arrived in Athens, he realized that this was the city of three things, right? A lot of idols, a lot of ideas, and a lot of intellectuals, right? And they are all there. Athens is the, is the hotbed of Greek philosophy. All the Greek philosophers from Socrates, some 550 years prior to this, okay, to his, to his student Plato, to his student, student, student Aristotle, and all the schools of Greek, his, uh, of Greek uh, philosophers, some who may not originate uh, from the Socratic line as well, you know. This is the hotbed. I'm sure um, there were other places, you know, it starts to, starts to, you know, take root elsewhere, but Athens was the capital of Greek thinking. I'm in the company of a Greek expert who reads Greek, <laughs> reads his Bible in Greek. <laughs> I'm going to be careful. Uh, here, here, here. Among you sits one who reads their Bible in ancient Greek. <laughs> okay, never mind. You're looking around. No, don't bother. Don't bother. Okay, and so <laughs> Paul arrives in Athens alone. He's troubled by the sheer volume of idolatry um, in the city. He, he sees altar after altar after altar after all. Each one will have kind of like an inscription of the name of the God, right, that the altar is for. And then, as always, he goes straight for the synagogue. But this time, from the synagogue, he eventually goes to the marketplace. Now, I want you to think of the marketplace in ancient Athens, um, not just like Jai Grocer, okay? So, the marketplace is not just like where you go, you just buy your provisions, you buy your meat, you buy your, you know, tomatoes, and then you go home, Right? And so, when Paul goes to the marketplace to share the gospel, he's not like, uh, hello, sister. He's like, what? Right? I'll share with you about Jesus. He's like, no. I'm buying, I'm buying pork. Right? Um, it's not like that, okay? Um, it was also a marketplace where people hung out. It was the general public space. It was a space, it was also not just a marketplace of trade and commerce, it was a marketplace of ideas. So that in those places, people would quite literally kind of like bounce, test, you know, arguments, philosophies, theories, you know, debates with one another. And so it would be, you can imagine, a, it's kind of like a debating club, but a big kind of like 
public social version of it. And people would just go and chill and talk and then it won't be so chill anymore, you know, and they would just test their ideas and go on like that. And they would gather regularly, okay? And that was also obviously the place of commerce where people would buy and trade and sell. So it becomes like a cross-section of lots of different kinds of people. And so they would go there and one thing Paul encounters or two groups of people Paul encounters are two sets of philosophical schools. He meets the Epicureans and he meets the Stoics. Now, both of these words have found their way into modern-day English. We refer to someone who loves food and is kind of quite good with, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, refined uh, 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 food and culture and taste buds as an Epicurean. So you might say that, well, you really should, uh, if, if, if such and such person invites you to one of her parties, you really should attend. She's quite an Epicurean, right? And it's like, oh, okay. Um, that's how you use the word today. Stoic, we use it today to describe someone who is very flatlined and like the, nothing in that world happens, you know, affects them. Uh, uh, um, if like, you know, oh, earthquake outside, you know, my father was so stoic, he just, you know, picked up the cat and walked out of the house, you know. Um, <laughs> stoic, right? Stereotype is, is Chinese man, right? <laughs> okay, but these things have their roots in in what the actual uh, uh, kind of like ideas of Stoicism and Epicureanism um, is actually about. Now, how many of you know a little bit about this? Raise your hands. No, right? Hardly anyone? My wife, yeah. Quite a few years ago, I wrote a paper on this part of Acts 17. And so I had to like refresh my mind. Like, oh my gosh, what, what did I write? You know, I don't remember. Uh, so I'm just going to give you like super layman version, okay? Greek philosophy from Acts 17 for laymen and laywomen. Can I? Wow, you're not persuaded, man. It's like, it's like a bad day to do Greek philosophy in church. Cannot. Try our Try la Now, the Stoics generally believe that God is everywhere and in everything. It's kind of like, so, so they, there's a name for this, they're called pantheists, right? In fact, actually, if you have a friend who is a Hindu, you know, uh, their deepest kind of ideas about God actually is very much like this. God is everywhere, He's in everything, you know. There is the, 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 the personal God in you, which is the Atma, and then there is the total global God in everywhere thing, which is the Paramatma, you know, like if you have a middle Hindu friend, they think like that, okay? Um, the Stoics pursue virtue. But they have a certain idea about what virtue is. When you hear virtue today, you might think, oh, uh, Greenpeace activist, right? Uh, 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 climate control, that's a virtue, right? Actually, uh, the Stoics understood virtue as only doing the things that are within your own control, okay? Um, don't go and catch out all, all these things that you out of your control, just accept your fate, okay? So that's how Stoics uh, generally think, okay? Remember this, layman, like Greek philosophy in two minutes, okay? And as a result of that, part of the core kind of like expression of Stoic philosophy is you suppress your emotions. Which is why today we see all this like, no reaction. It's like, wow, the uncle's so Stoic, right? Okay, so that's where you got it from. Now, it's important to know that as an outflow of this, there is no concept of a personal God. A God who, as I shared with you, can be known. You want to know God more? There is no concept of, I want to know God more, because God is not a person, right? Now, 
to be fair, the entire Greek pantheon has tons of person-like gods, right? And so, but that's not what the Stoics understood it as, okay? Let's move on to the Epicureans. The Epicureans considered that the gods may well exist, okay? But they are very distant. They are very distant, they are very uninvolved, and whatever's happening here in our earthly existence, they kind of leave it to run without any interference. So it's like all these things are just running, and the gods are just standing off very far away. They don't get involved, you know. It's like ASEAN has a, has a doctrine of uh, non-interference with each other, right? Okay, um, yeah, maybe they learned it from the Epicurean, <laughs> okay? Um, now, as a result of this, the Stoics, sorry, the Epicureans, their whole philosophy is about pursuing pleasure. Their pleasure is not quite the same as the whole sex, drugs and rock and roll, like, uh, we are Epicureans. It's not quite like that. They believe in quiet life with friends and food. So eating and drinking well was part of the Epicureans' idea of a good life, um, pursuing pleasure, but quietly with your friends in far-flung places, possibly, right? Um, and as a result, that they also believe that the universe is not created, so it's kind of like, it's just kind of always there, the gods are not really in the picture, and so on. One thing in common is that death does not lead to any discernible kind of reward or punishment. It's just live for the now and then die. Live for the now somewhat and then die. And Paul is going to speak into these two things now that he's in Athens and he meets the Stoics, he meets the Epicureans. It's, gosh, if you, if you play football and you kind of like play against, uh, you know, high press, like Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola type team, you know, like you kind of know what tactics you need to play against that kind of like, you know, team. Like let's say, okay, let's say use national. You play against Germany, you know, like, wow, super, you know, organized, you know, uh, crosses, headers, that kind of thing. Like you know how to play against that kind of thing. You have to set up one style of football. And suddenly you play Spain, and it's like all these small guys, tiki-taka, they pass their way, you know, all around you, you know, they dribble well or whatever. Then you can like a different style of playing with these guys, right? Now imagine playing both of them at once. You don't need to, you don't need to understand football to, understand, to appreciate that if you're playing both of them at once, it's going to be quite difficult because you're going to need to find how to, how to deal with this and then how to deal with this and how to deal with this. Paul is speaking to the Stoics and to the Epicureans at the same time. And he has one gospel for them, not two. He has one gospel, one good news, one Christ to share with them. Now, you may think that that's Paul's problem. That's not just Paul's problem. Today, we live in a world full of modern versions of Stoics and modern-day versions of Epicureans. Of course, sometimes things you know, will evolve and take a turn. But we do believe. We do have people on our doorstep who believe that God is everywhere. He's in everything. You know, um, on Sundays, I take my kids to play football. And one of the other dads at the football is this Hindu man. Um, and he's, he's very evangelistic about his faith with me. So he will come up to me, you know, while watching the kids play. And he'll be like, he, and he found out I'm a pastor. <laughs> Bad move, Fergus. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't give away all your hand, right? He was like, you know, brother, yeah. 
you know God, uh, He's just everywhere. He's in everything. Yeah, He's He says everything contains traces of God. Even the leaf contains traces of God. You know, and then you and you literally go on. And I'm like trying to watch the kids play football, and he's and he's telling me that right. And so we do live in and among neighbors who believe that that's the case, right? And of course, we are not short of neighbors who would live it up, right? Paul enters this space, okay. And as a result of sharing his gospel the way he always does, they say that he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. They say it's a foreign deity because it's something that they are not familiar with. But when he says foreign deity, when they say foreign deity, it's, it sounds quite tame to you. It's not tame, okay? When Socrates was sentenced to death, Socrates, the philosopher, 550 years prior, one of the charges against him is that he's polluting the minds of young people and coming against the gods of the Jewish pantheon and of the Jewish tradition. And so to receive a charge or a kind of like off-handed comment, oh, he's preaching foreign deities. Almost like brackets again, like this new guy also preaching foreign deities, right? It's like, it's not, it's, it's laced with a bit of danger. It's a bit of like, okay, what's, what's going to happen here? And then they say, let's take him to the Areopagus. Let's go, why don't you make your case in the Areopagus? What is the Areopagus? This is the Areopagus, right? It's just a picture. Okay? Um, it's, it used to be a super, like a supreme court, like a high court for ideas. Okay, such that if people, not just ideas, murderers were charged there, were trialed there, um, other kinds of criminals were trialed there, but it also, and some commentators say, was the place where people would trial you for the ideas you have. Okay, so by this time, the Areopagus wasn't a formal gathering like the Sanhedrin, it's a formal gathering, it wasn't anymore, but to take someone to the Areopagus is almost like saying, let's not debate this here. Let's debate this, you know, in Putrajaya. And suddenly you feel like, wow, why must go until Putrajaya? It's like, yes, let's do this in Putrajaya. It's like, oh, I feel some danger here, right? Um, so you can see this, Paul giving his so-called defence, okay, of his beliefs in, Ar in the Areopagus. You see people listening, you know. You see the vestiges of Greek and Roman powers behind him with one God there, almost like a silent listener being trialed, being judged, you know, or watching over Paul. This is another painting of Paul at the centre in white, you know, and you get a mixture of different people. Interesting, like, I was just looking at all this, like, oh, like, plants are growing everywhere. It's almost as if to say that some of these parts are in ruin and decay, right? And some of these things are not like, it's almost as if, now I'm going to show you the third one to describe it. As if to say that this Greek philosophy, this Greek idea, this Roman world is one that's passing away, falling apart. It's being supplanted by the new thing that is coming out from here, right? And of course, if you like art, you would think about these things when you look at paintings. This is, historically, it might look something like this. Now, Paul starts by asking them, do you really know the God you worship? And I'm going to pose this question to you as well because some of you, Christians maybe many years, but you are not that familiar with your Bibles. Maybe you don't know where to start. Maybe no one ever helped you. We want to help you here in this church. 
we really want to help you in this church. I'm not going to scold you for not knowing your Bible. I'm going to encourage you to come, stay, and know the Bible together. If you never read through your Bible, you know, before, start here in SIBKL at Sungai Bulo. We'll come alongside you. We'll read the Bible uh, together with you. We're starting this year in the book of Acts. And then next year, I want to give you strong foundations in the entire Bible narrative, right? Do you know the God you worship? Paul said to them, I come to your city and I see so many altars with so many inscriptions of so many gods. You even have an inscription to an unknown god, meaning the Dunline line. It's like the, the, all the gods that I did not cover, um, this one can type out all of those gods, right? Like, like the unknown god, the could-be-anything god, right? And then Paul says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance... So Paul doesn't scold them for having many gods, huh? by the way. You just, let's just be clear. Paul says, you worship so many things, you even worship an empty container that you say this can be anything that I failed to cover. I'm here to tell you what that is. And then he launches into preaching the gospel to them, right? And he shares with them that from time of yore, God has set things up so that one man has made every nationality to live over the whole earth as determined, uh, as has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. In other words, God has set things up historically so that everyone is spread out in the way they are now. You here in Athens, we there, you know, in the Levant and whatever, so that all of us might seek God, reach out and find Him. Now church, you can reach out and find God. Your God is not an unknown God. Your God is also not an unknowable God. Your God can be known. Your God can be found. Your God can be reached. Our God can be found if you reach out to Him. He is not far from each one of us. Now sometimes in your own walk, you may feel that God has gone very far from you. Now, I don't want to say in every instance you, have, uh, you are the one who you who went far from God, okay? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you just feel that He's very far. Maybe there are things that are in between the both of you. Maybe it's just that you overtrust feelings. Maybe God is near, it's just that you don't feel it, right? And doesn't, just because you don't feel He's there doesn't mean that He's not near. But I believe, as the Bible says here, that if you reach out, He's not so far that you can't reach Him. You can reach Him. And right now, today, I've, I will not presume to know what struggles you're going through. You may be going through a difficult situation in your home, in your finances, at your workplace. You may be going through a very dead-end-like situation with a particular friendship or a relationship. You may be struggling to find work or the kind of work that you wish you could get. You may be struggling with any other kind of thing. But I want you to know that God is not so far that you can't reach out. You can reach out. You should reach out and you will find Him. Elsewhere, Jesus said, ask, you shall receive. And the Greek term says, ask and keep asking, you shall receive. Knock and keep knocking, the door will be open to you. Seek and keep seeking and you shall find Him. For in Him, we live and move and have our being. He animates you daily. That you can wake up each day and be animated into living human being life is that God has given you breath. He is not so far from you. He is 
very close indeed. Now, I want to kind of close here. That There's one more slide, but I think this, he tells them that they have to repent. He tells them that God is going to come. He's going to judge. And that he's going to judge him with this man, this one man. Who is this one man? This is the one man he has legitimized by raising him up from the dead. That's that one man. This one man is Jesus, right? But I want to close, really. Can the broadcast team just give me a black slide? Because I don't want this to be distracting. I want to close by saying this. We want to know God better. We want to know God more. And I began by telling you about the wedding I attended this yesterday morning and how their, their vows sounded like a prayer. In as much as we want to know God more, God also wants to know you more. Can I have the worship team on stage? Thanks, yeah. In as much as you want to know God more, God also wants to know you more. It's not the kind of knowing like, God is omniscient, He knows. He knows. But He wants to relationally know you more. He wants you to reveal yourself to Him, even as He has revealed Himself to you. He wants you to draw close to Him, even as He has drawn close to you. And we say sometimes in church that you read the Bible, but actually in the end, the Bible reads you. The Bible searches you back. The Bible examines you even as you examine the Bible. And that's beautiful. That when you chase after God and you explore the wonders that are contained in God, God re-explores you back. Knows the innermost concerns of your heart knows the innermost joy in you, is interested even in the trivial things. Like you bought something on Shopee and it arrived last night, you're so happy, right? Like even in the trivial things, He knows and He's happy with you. He's joyful with you. He's burdened with you. He walks with you. God wants to know you back. But sometimes we keep those doors closed. We say, I shall examine you scientifically from a distance without getting my emotions involved. Thank you very much. And those doors will always remain closed. And as long as those doors are closed, He can't come in. And He can't dine and wine with you. He can't sit with you and be with you in those painful moments. I want to encourage you. You can open those doors to Him anytime. Anytime you can open those doors to Him. He longs for it. He wants you to open your Bible and seek Him in it. He wants you to open the doors of your heart and let Him in. So if there is any one of us here, now I'm not going to ask Christian or non-Christian. I'm going to ask, you feel you know Him? Or you feel actually so long already, still don't really know Him. If you want to know Him, in a moment I'm going to get all of you to stand. But if you really want to know Him, you want to make a decision, I want to get serious about knowing my God. But actually more than that, I want to get serious about being known by God. I'm going to reveal now, you don't have to share your deepest, darkest heart with anyone else. But I am inviting you to share it with God. And he's a safe listener. He does not 
blab to prophets who will call you out in public like that don't have to be afraid he does not scold you for the things that are deep in your heart he loves you he cares for you and some some of these things that you're going to share with him he's going to search you he might challenge you and without shaming you he might come before you and give a strong word to you when you're ready and then sometimes he just puts a strong arm around you and say I'm here with you I'm going to lead you out of this but you can't stay here you just can't stay here anymore it's not good for you for some of you he's going to come and give you strength and say I'm going to lift you out of this black place this dark place that you're in because where you're in is full of full, full, full of things that's going to harm you whatever it might be wherever it might be I want you to if that's you while we're standing all eyes closed later your hands open up your hands open up before God you don't even have to raise them just open up as a way of saying I want to know you more and I want to be known by you more I want to give this all a moment I don't want to rush this moment but I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come to come to reveal Himself to you right now if there is a question in your heart a burden in your heart a weight a concern we're all just going to rest in the presence of the Holy Spirit we're not going to jam up the atmosphere nothing of the sort Holy Spirit come you see open doors you see hearts that are open before you Holy Spirit come and fill these hearts Lord Jesus come and enter enter the deepest most private parts of our hearts of our lives right now come in Lord Jesus I want you to just say to the Lord one thing that one thing that you want to say to Him just take a moment say it before Him right now Jesus hears your prayer. Jesus hears your cry for help. Jesus hears your burden. He sees it. He says, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Lay your yoke, your burden, your weight at my feet. I give you peace I give you rest Jesus is here in your heart with you right now you are not alone you're not alone in this issue not alone anymore before you may have been alone in this issue you are no longer alone Jesus is with you Father we love you Teach us each day to love you with a renewed heart, with a love that is pure, with a love that is prepared to not just love you, but be loved by you. If any one of us struggles to be loved, 
and you don't feel that you are nice, you don't feel that you are lovable, you don't understand why anyone would want to love you, Jesus says, I love you. I love you. Now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and be so gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance toward you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.